Well, I would hope to, at the end of our time together, to go around to every one of you and say something personally. But I know that's not going to happen. Uh, I've got to be out of here and back to another meeting at 2 o'clock this afternoon. So let me just publicly say a couple of thank yous up here up front. Um, I want to just thank those who have really put the conference together. If you've ever been in conference work and involved in conferences, you really appreciate what goes on to make a conference happen because they don't just happen. They take a lot of work, and I've been involved in enough of them to know that behind the scenes, all kind of crazy things happen, unexpected things, hiccups come along the way, and they go deal with them at all kind of odd hours and moments of the day, and all you know is, wow, this is great. (laughs) So thank you to all of you guys who have put on such a fabulous job of what you've done here, and thank you who have come and really... It's been an honor to me, a privilege, really, to get to stand before you. Uh, I describe myself as a, as a little podunk preacher from a little podunk town in North Georgia to get to have you set before me and for you to lend your hearts and your affections to singing and to the word and to all that we've done together. It's just been for me a real, real treat. I'm telling you, a real treat it, for people who preach and speak. There is one thing you love, and that is people who are longing and desiring to hear the word of God, to, to love him, to follow him, to please him. That is, that is like gold right there. You know, uh, there are places you go sometimes that it's like talking to a brick wall. This is not one of those places. So thank you for your heart and for your love and your desire to hear from the Lord and to follow him and please him. All right. So one last time, we're going to turn to the book of Philippians this morning. And um, I'm going to say this, but don't hold me to it. I'm not going to take as long in this part of Philippians as I have in the other messages. I know many of you have places to be and places to go, but I do want to spend our last few moments together as we return to our theme that we've been thinking about, and that is praying with confidence. And I and I say that because that's what I see in verses 12 through uh, verses 20 down to the end of that section there, Paul keeps using the phrase, I know. He began in verse 12, I now want you to know, brethren, I I want you to know this, and I know this, and I'm confident about this. I have assurance, I have certainty. And he's going to say it one more time right here in verse 19, for I know. And those are the words of a man who is confident, who has assurance, who has certainty. And I hope that maybe that's been happening in our hearts as we've spent a little bit of a time in this book. So Paul, as you would say, is not the guy who is writing to them saying, you know, I'm really hoping this kind of works out like I think it might. I kind of like a hanging on, biting my nails, and I'm pretty sure how things are going to go. No, he's absolutely confident and certain about what he is saying here. In fact, in verse 19, when he says, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance. That's quite a confident statement. I know. I am certain. I am sure this is going to turn out this way for my deliverance. Now, we'll figure out what that means in just a moment and how that applies to our life. But as I've said, all of Paul's confidence in whatever it was about how he got to Rome, how God was spreading the gospel, all of that flows out of something that is not in him. 
It's something, it is actually someone outside of him. And I don't want to clarify that so you don't misunderstand what I mean. I don't mean that he has confidence in something outside of himself being God. And as if God is up there and Paul's down here, he's saying, man, I know we got this one. Let's go. I've got confidence in you outside of me. I don't mean it in the outside of himself. We know that the Bible teaches that in the incarnation and in the indwelling of God, that we have both God with us and God in us, right? So I'm not saying that Paul is saying, hey, my confidence is outside of myself, as if to say, I'm down here and God is up there. No, he's right here in me. But what he is saying is that my confidence is not in my human flesh. It's not in my abilities. It's not something I can drum up on my own. Only God in me could do this. Only God could give me that kind of confidence because confidence and assurance and certainty and faith and all those things we have are always only as great as what we attach it to. Now, let me let me illustrate that to you for just an example. And I'll, I'll put this little saying on the board. I thought about it this morning as I was praying about this. Our faith is no greater than the object we attach it to. And what I mean by that is this. Let's say you're standing on the side of a bank and there's a river you're going to have to cross. You've got to get to the other side. And you could come up to that river in the dead of winter and you could look and you could tap on that ice and you go, wow, man, that ice is about uh, eighth of an inch thick. And you could stand there and you could say, man, I'm pretty confident. I am sure I can make it across this. I am strong. I'm a, I'm a confident person. And you take your step out on that one eighth inch of ice and you're going to do what? Push. All the confidence in the world, all the I can do this mentality is basically saying you are attaching your faith to your ability, to yourself, to something in you. But let's say you come up to that same bank. And you're standing there and you know you got to get across and you're kind of scared about this. You, you're just wondering, how's it going to be to get across there? I'm not really sure. Worry is filling your mind and your heart and it seems pretty scary to do this. But you go over there and you tap on the ice and that thing is two feet deep. <laughs> it's two feet deep. It is something that really is absolutely going to be able to hold you up. And you can step out there and you can slide and you can scarily walk across that thing, but you will get across it because your faith is not attached to you. It's attached to the depth and the strength of that ice. And that's just a simple illustration for us to realize that when Paul says his confidence is outside of himself, he's saying, I'm not saying I can be strong. I'm a strong person. Nothing ever bothers me. You know, I am like Superman. That is not what he is saying. He is saying, I have attached my faith to a God who is not out there somewhere, but in me and with me. And because of that, my faith is just as great as he is. My faith is as great as the object I attach it to. So so don't think in terms of our faith will grow as we kind of look up there and go, okay, God, you're in the heavens. And he is, but he has condescended in the incarnation and in the indwelling by the Spirit to not just be with us, but in us. And it's sad to think that sometimes Christians open their Bible, read their Bible, and think that God is way up there somewhere, kind of distanced from them, rather than with them and in them. I'll never remember, forget this example that just came crashing home to me one day as my son Josiah, who is now 29 years old, he was an eight-year-old little boy, and we were out in the our driveway shooting hoops, just like this. And so... Um, we had this goal that, you know, is obviously 10 feet regulation height, but you can lower it down to 8 feet. 
And I lowered that thing down to eight feet. And I was down there showing him my stuff. I'd play basketball. And I was doing this. And I was backward, boom, slamming the thing and all that. And, man, I was like, hey, Josiah, you can do this, man. This is not hard at all, man. All you do is just, boom, like that. And I was slamming it. And I was having a blast. And here's a little eight-year-old boy. He's about that tall at that time. And finally, after I kept saying, you can do this, man, you can do that. You know what he said to me? He said, Daddy, listen. It's easy for you. Here's what he said. Greatest theological statement I ever heard in my life. You're up there, but I'm down here. And I go, whoa, now that is just how people think of God. Hey, that's one thing to tell me to trust you, but man, you're up there. No, he's down here. You can't ever say to Him, you don't know. You don't understand. He's come into our world in the incarnation. Come to indwell us. He has been through and experienced everything we will ever experience. When Paul is talking about his circumstances, he's not looking up saying, God, I know you're out there. We can do this. He's saying, I'm confident because you're down here. You're with me. You are in me. And so when we think about that kind of confidence that Paul has, that's exactly what I want you to understand. It's kind of what The hymn writer, the modern hymn writer is saying when he writes these words, Christ, the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn in the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, deeper still then goes the anchor, though I justly stand accused. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow, oh my soul now, lift your eyes to Calvary, this my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved, I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never, ever be removed. Brothers and sisters, if you don't know that song, you need to download that and you need to let that be something to strengthen and encourage you. There is an anchor. There is a security. There is a confidence that we have outside of our humanness, outside of our own wisdom and ability, the very God who has come to dwell with us and in us in Christ. So if you think that way, then I'll put them up one last time. There are four things that we have said this means. It means that you begin to express a confidence that, and you've chosen to do this. You didn't just accidentally kind of by osmosis or something do this. You chose to see your obstacles as a way that God is providing an opportunity for you that you would have never had before. Paul saw it that way. Secondly, we said that it means you will start showing a confidence that all you, though you are chained and though you can't get free from what you are in, you will see it as God's way of producing confidence in others. Brothers are being strengthened. Things are happening that would have never happened had you not been in that situation and had God not brought you the grace and strength there. And then thirdly, we said this confidence means that we choose to focus on the ministry God has called us to rather than the motives of others. There may be those who intentionally try to harm and hurt you, to bring you down, to discourage you. Weapons and instruments, thorns in the flesh, as Paul would describe them to the Corinthians, who were just piercing his side. They may be there, but focus on the ministry. That's what confidence in our God 
does. And then finally, we said that it means that you choose to have joy in the person rather than letting your emotions lead you uh, and focus on the problems. That's Those are those four things. Now, that brings us down to the final thing we're going to say in verses 19 and 20. And I've titled this section, Why I Need You to Pray. Because that's what we see Paul doing. Notice what he does in verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So let's look at this passage and try to figure out very quickly, uh, just reminding ourselves, what was Paul talking about here when he said that he was expecting a deliverance? Now, interestingly, when he uses that phrase there, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, most commentators believe that these are actually probably Paul quoting the words of Job from the book of Job. Remember when Job re- replied to Zophar about the this statement, he said, Though he, God, slay me, I will trust in him. This, he says, will turn out for my deliverance. So probably a quote back to Job 13, most people think. But really the question that is most important is not where it came from, but what did it mean? What did Job mean? Well, what is it that Paul is saying here? Is he saying something like, hey, I'm hoping to make an escape. I'm confident that I'm going to get the escape. Is he saying he's expecting an angel at any moment to come and unfasten the handcuffs and whisk him away like Peter was taken out of the jail? Is that what he's thinking? Is he thinking that maybe he is somehow going to go to court and be vindicated? Is he certain that his reputation is finally going to be vindicated and all those pastors and all those church leaders and all those people out there who are assuming the worst about him, spreading things about him that are not true, that all of that is going to go away? Is that what he means? That God is going to deliver him? That's what he's expecting? Well, here's what I think it really probably means. I think from the way Paul clarifies in verse 20 here, and following about whether I live or whether I die, here's what he's confident of. I am confident that the God that my hope and my assurance and my faith is attached to, I am confident of one of two things. I'm going to be delivered by either going to court and I have an innocent verdict, and guess what? That means I will live. Or I'm going to be delivered through death, and that means I go to be with Christ. That's what he's confident of. I am confident of this. One of these things are going to happen. He's not saying, well, I bet it could be an angel. It could be this. No, he's not. He's not even going there. He's just saying this is the obvious conclusion and the thing I am expecting. And this is what I know will turn out for my deliverance. I'm going free uh, and being vindicated. And you know what? That means I'll keep living. If I don't, then the alternative is. I'm going to die. And that means I'll be with Christ. And the rest of the chapter just unfolds that way about what it means, whether I live, whether I die. So that's what he's after. That's his assurance. That's his confidence. And that should grab our attention. Listen carefully, because of what he says is going to cause this to happen. Notice he says in verse 19, for I know this, this deliverance will turn out. And he says what? Through something. It's through something. There is a means that God is going to use to bring about that deliverance. Whatever way it goes, 
I can guarantee you there's two things he's going to use. And that's what Paul is dependent on. That's the next part of the verses I want you to look at. He's dependent on two things. I know he says that through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Now, in the verse, prayer is first and the provision of the Spirit is second. And I don't want to die, don't want to die on this hill about that's an insignificant, important order as if to say prayer is first and then the Spirit works. I'm not going to die on that hill. I think they are just inseparably connected. There's not a sequential thing he's thinking of here, just that these are two things that are operating in my life and two things I am counting on here. And if we understand them, it's kind of like when we read in the Bible that God is working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Which one is it? Is it God working in me or me working it out? And the answer is it's both, right? Uh, they're not some kind of order here. It's uh they're both happening. And so when Paul says, I am confident, and I am confident, and I have this assurance that I am going to be delivered, however that deliverance turns out, death or life, what I'm sure is that through two things, this is how it's all going to work out. I'd like to just talk about the provision of the Spirit first. And then, since this is a prayer conference, I want to spend the rest of the time talking about prayer. Okay? So he says it's through the provision of the Spirit. And that obviously is not hard to understand. I mean, nobody argues over what this means. It just means that God is going to ultimately provide everything he needs, this generous, sufficient, bountiful resource called the Holy Spirit, who is in him and with him. God is going to give him this generous, sufficient, bountiful resource. When that day comes, Paul says, if I am going to stand before the courts and have to give an account, or if I die in that moment, at that time, God is going to give me the generous, sufficient, and bountiful resource of the Spirit. It will be enough. It will be more than I need. It's just what I need at the right moment. Now, doesn't that kind of resonate with you of what Jesus had promised the disciples back in the gospel? Remember back in Matthew 10, 18 through 20, Jesus said, they're going to drag you before the governors and the kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour for it is not you who speak, but listen, the spirit of your father speaking through you. And Paul says, listen, I'm telling you what, if there's one thing I know right now, I may not have that strength I need to do the standing up and deal with the what's going to happen in the deliverance. But when I get there, because Jesus has promised the spirit of God is within me. I know that the provision of the spirit, the bountiful, generous, sufficient spirit of God living in me is going to help me whether I face Caesar or I face death. It doesn't really matter. I am confident of that. Now, the second thing he says is not only is this going to take place, the deliverance through the provision of the Spirit, but it's also going to be through your prayers. Now, sometimes people say to me, well, listen, isn't God all I really need? Isn't Jesus enough? I mean, isn't that the... Some total of it. If I just got him, I've got it all. You know, Jesus is not all you need till Jesus is all you got. So uh, I just need him and I'm all good. Don't I just need him? I don't really need anybody else. Well, let me give you the word for that. It's a Greek word. It's called wrong. That's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a Hebrew word called hogwash. (laughs) That's ridiculous. 
just you and God, you and Jesus, we got this. Whether we're before Caesar, whether we're facing death, we got this. We're okay. We don't need anybody but God. You see, prayer is both a reminder that we do need God, listen carefully, and we need one another. It's a dual reminder to us here. I love Art, what he said yesterday, and it just so resonated within me because I am one of those guys who are all over, preach the word, exegete the word, explain the word, stand on the word, make sure people understand the word. But brothers and sisters, as he said yesterday, we are somewhat lopsided here. We're all about fighting for the truth, standing for the truth, and we should. But where is that passionate plea, that cry out, you've got to stay alert, you've got to watch, we need you to pray. Where is that kind of person? That is what Paul is saying here. I need your prayer. I won't get through this. I won't face death right. I won't face seizure right. I won't do what I'm supposed to do unless you are praying. I need you to pray. And Paul, listen, he understood that balance, right? Spirit of God, all that I need in Him is there, everything. But I also need you to pray. I mean, think about how many times in his letters that he just pleads with. He begs, he urges, he cries out for the people of God to pray for him. To the Thessalonians, he just simply says, pray for us. In 2 Thessalonians 3, he writes, Brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread ahead and be honored and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. He writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.11, You also must help us. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on your our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. He wrote to the Romans in chapter 15, verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And so Art is absolutely right in reminding us. He is spot on that we are often out of balance, heavy focus on one side of preaching and truth, and we are often forgetful and weak on the side of how much we need prayer. Now, let me say another thing about this issue of prayer and the importance of prayer. As you think about God is sovereign and God is in control, God brought Paul to Rome. God opened the doors with the guards. God opened the doors for the gospel to go all through Caesar's household. You might be tempted to think if God is sovereign and he did all of that, then really why are we praying? He's going to do what he's going to do anyway, right? I mean, he is God. No one can stop him or thwart his purposes. So really, what is the point of praying at all? Is it kind of just like a routine, a symbolic thing we do just to say, you're in control, you're going to do what you're going to do? Is that what it means? I mean, if God is really sovereign, someone has often said to me, and Kevin, why do we really need to pray? Have you ever heard anyone say something like that? There's another word, Greek word for that. That's like crazy, right? <laughs> What do you mean, why should we pray if God is sovereign and God is going to do what he's going to do anyway? Listen, I have a question back to that person I always ask when they say, if God is sovereign, why are you praying? My question is this, uh, if he's not sovereign, why are you praying? Right? <laughs> why would you even pray? 
I mean, how crazy is that? You, you, you think if God is not the controller and the ruler of the universe that he could intervene, he can overrule, he can step into the midst and change situations? If you don't really believe that God is sovereign and in control like that, why would you even be praying to him? I mean, that really is a waste of time. You think you're going to convince him to do something he doesn't want to do? Listen, we have every reason to pray, and the reason we have to pray is because he is just that, sovereign. He is in control. If he wasn't, then you're wasting your time talking to God, right? You're not going to get a bunch of people to get together in prayer and gang up on God and get his arm behind his back. And he goes, okay, I give. I'll do it. I'll do it. I will do it. Uncle, right? He's not going to do that. No, he is sovereign. And you pray because he is sovereign and he has that ability. And it's a little simple song, right? He has the whole world in his hand. That's why I'm praying to him. That's why Paul is praying to him. That's why Paul is asking them to pray. God is in control. And Paul understood that. And listen, brothers and sisters, growing in confidence doesn't mean me and God have got this thing and I'm good. Growing in confidence means I realize how much I need my brothers and sisters to pray to our sovereign God. Without him, I don't know how we're going to face Caesar. I don't know how we're going to face death. The deliverance can only be experienced as it should be if the supply of the Spirit is there and we are praying. I often think this would be really interesting to think about as you go through the Scriptures. The Scripture often emphasizes praying more than we begin to apply, and it's much more significant than we ever begin to understand. That's the emphasis of Scripture there. So maybe we need to balance that out some more in our life and work on that. Uh, we often, unfortunately, assume that the stronger someone is in Christ, the more they know their identity in Christ, the more they know their, their the truth of Scripture, the more they won't need prayer. But the opposite is just true. They realize how much they need prayer. So that's what Paul is saying in the passage. So let's wrap it up and let's look at what he wanted them to pray for. There are three things that Paul wanted them to pray for him. And they're right there in verse 20. Number one, he says, pray. I get that. I don't know if you can read that. Pray. I'll put it in my notes here. Pray. He wants them to pray that I will keep my focus on what matters most. He says, I am so like iPad kind of, I almost went over there and went like that and pushed on the screen. That's <laughs> so bad. I have to open my Bible sometimes and I couldn't read a word and I'll go. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> but that's supposed to say, <laughs> Paul is saying here, I want you to pray that I focus on what matters most. That's what he means when he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any Thing. The idea here is when he talks about an earnest expectation, it's the idea of stretching the neck forward here. It's the idea of the neck not being turned off and looking to the side, but actually looking ahead and concentrating on what is before him. He knows what's coming, death or life. So let me just stay focused on that. I need you to pray that I will stay focused on what matters most. I don't need to get caught up in little side issues and things that might distract me from that. I need to stay focused. It's kind of like when you're planning a trip to go somewhere, right? You kind of have an expectation of the trip and the experience and what it's going to be like. And that's what Paul is talking about. I'm looking forward. I'm keeping focused on that. Now listen, 
We all know that in the Christian life, so many little things come along to just eat at us and pull us aside and distract us from what matters most. And here Paul says, listen, I know the potential for that for me. And what I want you to do is I want you to pray that I don't get turned aside to lesser things, lesser important things, things that really just are not ultimately worth being bothered over. Help me as you pray that I will stay focused on that. So Paul is concerned not so much about the courtroom or the experience of death as much as staying focused until he gets there. Just stay focused until I get there. Keep, as we've heard over and over again, the main thing, the main thing. Paul is saying, I want you to pray that I'll stay true regardless of the verdict. It doesn't really matter what the verdict is. Freed to live, put to death, to die and be with Christ. It really doesn't matter. Just help me as you pray that I will do that. So the next thing he says is I want you to pray that I will model courage. Isn't that interesting? He says that in this passage where he goes on to says that I will with all boldness. Listen, I am asking you to pray for me that I will keep my focus, my earnest expectation. I don't want to be ashamed of the Lord. I don't want to be ashamed of the body. I just want to keep my focus on where I'm going, what God has called me to. I want you to pray that I'll focus on what matters. And I want you to pray that as I do that, that I will have this boldness. I will have this boldness. He wants to have the boldness that only, listen, God can give. He doesn't want his, as we often hear in Scripture, Faith to fail, right? As Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. What that means is not that I would lose my salvation, but that my faith would wobble, that my faith would become weak, that my faith would get turned to trusting in something else, anchoring it to something, attaching it to something other than the God who I need to trust. He doesn't want to have misplaced faith. He wants to have bold and strong faith. And he's saying, pray for me. Pray that my faith as it were, will just stay strong like that with all boldness. All boldness. Charles Spurgeon is probably one of my favorite preachers to read, not just his messages at times, but more often his story and his life. And you would know that name without me having to give much any detail of at all. But one of the things you may or may not know about the life of Charles Spurgeon, who was probably the most influential, effective uh, Baptist preacher in the last 250 years from England, right? At Towards the end of his life in his ministry, he's training pastors, he's preaching faithfully the word. He saw a decline going on in the church. And the decline was that two things were literally being lost in the church. One was they were no longer believing in the atoning work of Christ, the substitutionary atoning death of Christ. That's the cross. And then secondly, that they were losing a confidence that the scripture was truly inspired, God-breathed, that God had given it. Those are two things, by the way, that define us as evangelicals, right? The gospel, the cross, and the word, right? Those two things. And they are really what Christians hold to. And Spurgeon saw that this was being eroded and they were losing it. And he stood up to stand against it and call it out as wrong. Well, as a result, the Baptist Union decided they no longer wanted him to be in their Baptist Union. And so they called together a day in which the Baptist pastors of the area would meet for a vote to kick Charles Spurgeon out of the Baptist Union. And so he wasn't there. He wasn't a part of that meeting. But a man was there by the name of Henry Oakley. 
And this is what he wrote about that meeting. He said, when the motion of censoring Spurgeon came up, a forest of hands went up. Any against the motion called the chairman? But I didn't see a hand at all raised. Although history records that there were seven who voted not to censure Spurgeon. But without any announcement of numbers, the vast assembly broke into mulches cheering and cheering and cheering more and more and more. He writes, from some of the older men, their pent-up hostility against Spurgeon found vent. It was a strange scene. I viewed it almost with tears. How many want Spurgeon gone? Every hand goes up. How many wants him to stay? Couldn't find a hand. Well, Spurgeon got news of that. He was told that they had voted him out. They no longer wanted him. He wrote a letter to a friend. And here is what he wrote at the end of that letter, describing the crushing hard blow that was to him. Here's what he said. Brother, please pray for me that my faith fail not. Now Spurgeon didn't think he was going to be lost, going to hell. He didn't think he was losing his salvation. He's just like, pray that my faith stays bold. Stay that my confidence stays strong. I need you to pray. Now, why is that important? Here's why I think that is important. Charles Spurgeon today is probably seen as the most effective English pastor in the last 250 years. Just maybe his work and all that he did has become so effective, listen, brothers and sisters, because that friend prayed. Prayed for him. I remember sitting right back over there in um, this auditorium about 35, 36 years ago. And uh, J. Oswald Sanders was right here, who has written the book on spiritual leadership. And I remember him saying this about uh, Charles Spurgeon. He said, the, the crowd at large does not recognize a leader until he is usually gone. And then they build a monument for him with the stones they threw at him when he was alive. Listen, that was a hard day for Charles Spurgeon. And we just look at it and we say, oh, look at the result. But what may have happened is, as Michael reminded us in our first lesson this morning from his talk, that prayer is indispensable for a fruitful ministry. Could it be that behind all that Spurgeon did, the success in its fruit continuing, the result of someone who is praying? So pray. Pray, Paul says, for me that I'll have boldness. I'll stand strong. I don't want my faith to wobble and become weak at this moment before Caesar or before the, the moment of death. Please pray for me. That's praying for boldness. Uh, I remember a recent experience of seeing that kind of boldness in pastors like I had never seen in my life. Uh, every year I go to Uganda twice a year to help shepherd and train and, and uh, equip pastors for ministry. And one time we were there in Uganda and then I was at a place where we were speaking and I was at a board meeting for the missionary and with all his staff. And he leaned over to me and he said, hey, Kevin, I need you to do something for me. I said, what's that? He said, across the field at my house on my back porch are 50 pastors. They've just fled from South Sudan under persecution. They've lost everything. Some of their family has been killed. 
and they are on my back porch. I need you to go up there and encourage them. So this is a pretty big field to walk across in Africa, and I'm walking across going, Lord, what am I going to say? What can I do? I mean, I mean, I'm just nowhere equipped to answer this. To, I don't know what to say to them. I've never been persecuted like this. I've never, ever had anyone threaten to take my life for the gospel. I've never lost a family member for the gospel. I have never experienced this. I mean, I've been called a name, made fun of. I have never had to flee my world and my life because I thought I was going to die for the gospel. So I'm walking across there and the Lord brought to my heart a reminder. Let's go to First Peter 5 about serving faithfully the great shepherd. And in the final day, we walked with them through that passage for about two hours, uh, which is hard for you to imagine. I can take two hours walking through a chapter. I get it. (laughs) That's supposed to be a joke. (laughs) It was not hard to spend two or three hours walking through that. They speak a British English, so it was really easy for us to do this. And so we go through this, and, um, and we picture, and I tell them at the end, that the chief shepherd is going to take this crown and he's going to place it on your head for standing for the gospel, for proclaiming Christ. And when I finished talking to them, all 50 of these pastors, one at a time, stood up and said, brothers, pray for me. I'm going back to South Sudan. If I die, I die. If I live, I will proclaim Christ. The Muslims will go into our people. They will feed them. They will care for them. And they will give them a heresy, a damnable message. They need to hear of Christ. I am going back to South Sudan. And my jaw went, wow. I came back to my church in North Georgia and I said, listen, I almost didn't want to leave Africa. That was real boldness. That was real confidence in the gospel. I spend all my life sometimes pleading with people, oh man, just talk to your neighbor. Just spend some time going over there, inviting them over and, and, and share a meal, build a relationship with them. And it's like, well, I'm a little scared what might happen. I'm like, oh. I mean, it's just almost like I'm spinning my wheels in North Georgia sometimes. And I saw it firsthand what that looks like for someone to say, pray for me, pray for my boldness. I'm going back. That is what the Apostle Paul is praying here. That is what he is praying. Now, last one and I'll be done. Third thing he wants them to pray for, he wants them to pray that I will magnify my Savior. You see that in the phrase there, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. Now, I want you to notice something in that phrase, in that verse. He is not, he is not, underscore this, praying for the day down the road when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God and He'll be exalted. He's not looking at that day. He's not looking at that time. That is a good prayer. That's a wonderful prayer. That's a biblical prayer to pray that we want that day to come. Come quickly, Lord. Be exalted. Make a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells and everyone confesses you are Lord indeed. That's a wonderful thing. But that's not what Paul is praying here. Paul isn't just saying, oh, I want you to pray that Christ will be magnified one day. We're looking forward to that day. We just want to see Him reign when no longer it's Rome, but it's Christ. He's not praying that. Here's what he's praying. He's praying that Christ will be magnified in His body right now. Notice what he says. That He will be exalted or magnified in 
Himself in His body. Not some future day when Christ is glorified, but right now. I want people to see His glory in me right now. I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty easy to pray a prayer like, Oh Lord, show us Your glory. Oh God, let Your truth be known. Oh God, let Your grace be seen. I think that's pretty easy to pray. It's another thing to pray, Oh Lord, show Your glory in me. In the way I live. And where I live. Oh God, let your truth be known through me. Oh God, let your grace be seen in my actions. Let people really get a taste of your gloriousness through me. That's a whole different prayer than praying that, God, I want you to be glorified over there. Be glorified one day. Let people see how great you are. No, he's saying, I want to be the vessel. I want to be the one that you do it. So Paul is saying, Jesus is going to be exalted for sure one day, but I want today, right now, in me for him to be exalted or magnified. It's one of those Greek words that I love it because it kind of reminds me what happens when I go through Burger King and Winn-Dixie. I mean, not Burger King, but McDonald's and all those places. It's a word called megaluna. I'm going to do this the next time I go there. And they'd say, would you like to supersize it? I said, yeah, why don't you megaloon that? <laughs> why don't you make it big, right? That's the word he's using here. I want Christ to be magnified, megaluno. I want him to be made large, supersized, larger than ever in my life. That's what I want them to see, how big he is, how great he is, how glorious he is. I want them to see that in me. And I need you to pray that way. I need you to pray that Christ will be magnified that way. I couldn't help think yesterday when Art was telling us about he lo- how he loves to look at birds, right? That's like, that was a cool, cool thing, right? <laughs> I love to look at stars. In the morning when I get up about four o'clock and go out, um, and just walk out and I have a little, we have a little dog, I take the dog out. And I just love on those clear mornings about four in the morning, just look up and go, wow. But here's what's interesting. I know, I know. Those stars are massive. They are big, right? But to me, they look like tiny little dots. But when you pull out a telescope and you draw that star or that planet in, what is it? It's megaluna. It's big. It's massive. And so I love the way that Warren Risby writes when he says, to the average person, Jesus Christ is a misty figure who lived centuries ago. But as they watch a believer's life like Paul, that believer acts as a telescope, bringing Jesus Christ so much closer, making him so much nearer. He is big in the eyes of people. That's what Paul wants. I want want that to happen in me. So as we think about this prayer conference and we close here, and we're thinking about where God has planted us, the circumstances, whatever they are, divinely drawn out and planned and purposed for you. And you've changed your attitude about that and you've made it your aim that you want to display this kind of glorious courage of your great God wherever you are. I would just ask you to really seriously consider. Start asking people to pray some things for you. Pray these three things. Why don't you ask them to pray for you that you will keep your focus on what matters most. Listen, I can get sidetracked on all kind of sports things. I can get sidetracked on riding my motorcycle. I love my motorcycle. Nothing wrong with that. I can ride it to the glory of God. I can go to a Georgia football game to the glory of God. I can enjoy all of that. 
Uh, you Clemson fans may not understand that, but I can do that. <laughs> I can love remodeling things in my house. I can love hanging out, doing things that are just, whether I eat or drink, doing to the glory of God. But it's sometimes easy to get sidetracked. So maybe you do that. And you need to ask someone to pray for you that you'll stay focused on what really matters most. Maybe in your situation, you need them to be praying for you that you'll have boldness. You'll model this kind of courage. And in it all, when it's all said and done at the end of the day, Christ will be so big and so magnified in that situation, in those circumstances, that people will say, wow, what a God. What a God. If we do that, I think we will have profited from our time together in Philippians chapter 1. If not, we might be like James says, where we've just looked at the word as a mirror and we go, wow, that's really good. Got that down, got that down. But we'll walk away unchanged. And that would be unprofitable for us. So let's let the word be mixed with faith, doing, applying, so that it might profit us as we go. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for this wonderful treasure on this earth to be with your people to be in the midst of brothers and sisters who um, love you, whose passion is what we've talked about over the last few days, to see you work not just through them, but in them, to be like Paul, to manifest and display this kind of confidence and courage and assurance because we keep attaching our faith. We keep anchoring our soul to you and to the revelation of yourself as you've given us in your word by your spirit. Just pray that that would keep on going and the work would continue, not just around these few days, but days to come, months to come. And we'd begin to see because of prayer, as a result of prayer, praying for one another, wonderful, glorious things happening, fruitful ministry, life's changed, your name magnified and glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.